0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, one of the best questions, one of the most thoughtful questions, in terms of practical relevance, that I consistently receive from people who take their Christian spiritual journey seriously, and I hear it over and over and over and over again, it's a great one, is this question. How does the Christian church, and for that matter, let's localize it. How does a Christian, an individual Christian, determine the difference between an eternal, absolute truth and its contemporary expression, or a contemporary essential, we'll call it. Uh, repeat that question. How does a Christian, how does a church, how does the church determine the difference between what is an eternal absolute truth and the contemporary expressions of those eternal absolute truths, or what I would refer to using biblical language, or at least from my New Revised Standard Version, a contemporary essential First of all I think we should look at the terms because terms are always relative in themselves. All human speech is metaphor. It only points, it never fully captures. That admission takes you a long way in your, personal, um, in your personal journey of interpreting life. But we all divide the pie of reality up differently and words mean different things to different people so let's get a common denominator on these words. The Christian church believes there are absolutes. And we're not the only people who believe there are absolutes, but I can say for the Christian church, we have always believed there are absolutes. Truths that are absolute. And by absolute, we mean a truth that is not relative. A truth that is not subjected to circumstance. A truth that exists independently of all conditions and variables. Now think about that for a minute. Private exercise. Do you hold any truths as so absolute they are without condition? They cannot be relativized. Relativized in the best sense of the word. They are not conditioned by other circumstances. An absolute is a value or a principle that is regarded as universally, not universal only in the sense of geography, but in the sense of time, time and space. A value principle, a value or principle that is regarded as universally valid, and that may be viewed without relation to any other condition. So the Christian churches always believe there are absolutes. Now, how do we distinguish those from contemporary expressions of those absolutes? What I would call a contemporary essential, a present. By contemporary, we mean present. By present essential or contemporary expression, we we mean a rule of life that is necessary in a time, in a specific time, or in a specific place. One of the challenges of people who face, one of the challenges facing, let me say it that way, one of the challenges facing the person who takes the Bible seriously as the Christian church does is distinguishing within the pages of Scripture what are the timeless absolutes and what are the time-relative essentials. You read down through the pages of Scripture and the problem with scripture is, on one hand, I hate to say the problem with scripture, but the challenge of scripture is you don't have color coding. Like I've said many times, all of you come from religious backgrounds who parse this differently. As a matter of fact, many of the essentials that have separated us denominationally are things that we have absolutized to the point that we've said this is so essential to us that it's absolute and we've gotta separate from you. And that's not an illegitimate concern or action. Everybody has to decide what are your absolutes and every denomination, every person has to decide what are the contemporary expressions of those absolutes. But facing the person who takes the Bible seriously is distinguishing even in the pages of scripture what are the timeless absolutes and what are the time relative essentials which are expressing the timeless absolute truth in a contemporary setting. By the way, when you read in scripture, you do read not only the absolutes, but you read the time-bound essentials that are relative to a setting that's two to three thousand years ago and halfway around the world. And, and, and so the question is, how do we tease that out? I've often, I, I, use, I use my own life as an example, but the little denomination that I grew up in Uh, Many of you come from denominations, um, there are many denominations who take 1 Corinthians 11 as a statement of absolute truth throughout its entirety, even to the point where Paul says that a woman should have long hair and a man should have short hair. And it's a shame for a woman to cut her hair. Now, my denomination, and many of your denominations looked at churches who allowed their women to cut their hair and said, it says right here, this is not Leviticus we're talking about, that's what we always heard. Sorry to those of you who love our first text, Hebrew Scripture, but this is 1 Corinthians. And, And Paul stated this, and he did not state that it was bound to the context of Corinth. As a matter of fact, he even said, per men's long hair, he said, nature teaches you a man shouldn't have long hair. And so, we wrestle with no color-coding, no legend at the bottom of the text that says, if you you see this, or if you see this indicator, then this is an absolute. If you see otherwise, it's a time-bound expression. Now, let me tell you how important this is from my perspective. Not recognizing this very important rule of interpretation Not recognizing it as a vital part of biblical interpretation is a tragic mistake, and the tragedy generally leads us in one of two directions. Some people don't recognize the time-bound expression versus the absolute truth of Scripture, and it leads them to a very sadly dismissive attitude towards Scripture. There are a lot of people who read our book and say, ridiculous. They pick it up off the shelf in the hotel room, and they open it up to Leviticus, and they read about people killing people and God telling them to kill all of the people and babies floating on the water in the flood and women can't cut their hair and slaves are supposed to be submissive to their masters and there are many people who were not raised with your sensibility within your culture who totally dismiss it and say, ridiculous, anachronistic, out of its time, irrelevant because they don't understand the principle that I mentioned a moment ago. On the other hand, at the opposite end, one that most of us would be more sensitive to um, is this terribly unfortunate dogmatism that doesn't read scripture with nuance and doesn't recognize the aforementioned principle And it yields this terribly unfortunate legalism, this dogmatism, that ends up saddling people with oppressive, unreasonable yokes of religious expectations and rules. Overvaluing the context of Scripture or undervaluing its ability to express timeless truths, both are costly errors. Now, part of the brilliance of the Bible, because I I would say, as sensible Christians, all of you have wondered at times, how do we read this book, and how do we tease out what's eternal and timeless, and how do we leave on the pages, not spitting out the bones, but leave on the pages the context in which it was spoken? Well, part of the brilliance of the Bible, as it positions itself to be an authoritative medium by which the church discerns the voice and direction of God, part of the brilliance of the Bible is it not only gives us final propositional truth, but perhaps as much and even more, it gives us processes. Not only does it give us processes, but it is so practical, it gives us example of those processes by which we can live effectively, individually and corporately in our present pursuit of the life of Christ and the kingdom of God. It yields these processes by which we can take information and put the information into the text, into the process, and come to conclusions for ourselves and our time, and in our space. No other book in the Bible, I think, gives us more of these processes than the book of Acts. As the history of the Christian church's earliest days, the book of Acts does just that. It gives us a process, and it provides us a great example of a group of people just like you, wrestling through What is the timeless eternal truth here and how does it apply to this present circumstance, a circumstance that for them was dire and heated? So the book of Acts provides us a very practical example, a very practical process of how we are to function as the people of God who take Christ's commission and the Bible seriously and are hoping through holy discernment it's called to figure out what God means for us here today. So, we're going to read from Paul's first missionary journey. I might even write a little on the whiteboard, but we're going to turn to Acts, the 14th chapter. And I just want you to read through this process as the church wrestles with the same thing you're wrestling with today. And frankly, any church has wrestled through in its own time, in its own space, in its own place. Watch a group of people in our earliest days wrestle with this question that I mentioned at the beginning of the text or the sermon. We'll start with Acts 14, verses 21 through 28. This is at the end of Paul's proverbial first missionary journey, we called it. This is when Paul had traveled from Antioch, which was the place where he really felt comfortable in the Christian church, an outpost of Jerusalem. He traveled from Antioch down through the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, and then from Cyprus he went up to the south-central region of what we now call Turkey. And he preached in an area called Lacaonia, Pamphylia, Pisidia and he established churches, the first churches established there were churches um, at Lystra, Derby, Antioch of Iconium, a different Antioch than he came from. Um, Antioch, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. And so this is the tail end of that journey after he's doubled back and he's going back through those cities on his way home to Antioch. So let's follow the text, and we'll just read through the text a lot like Brian did last week with Acts 16 and a lot like I did a few weeks ago with Acts 10 and 11. We're still in that same setting. Verse 21 of Acts 14, and so the overarching question is absolute truth, contemporary expression, or essential? After they had proclaimed the good news in that city, to that city, that's Derby, where Paul had been stoned. Do you remember when he was stoned and left for dead? He had risen either from the dead or from a really bad beating, and he proclaimed the good news there in Derby and had made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra. And then they went on to Iconium and Antioch, reversing their steps on the way home. And there they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now in all of those cities, there had been Jewish people and Gentile people converted to Christianity. Um, And so they strengthened those people. Verse 23, after they had appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. Brand new churches, brand new Christians. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. From there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they they had completed. So they're back home in Antioch. When they arrive back home in Antioch, one of the things I like about the process that we see in the early church in the book of Acts is that it is not clean and it is not so totally divine that you don't see the human frailty woven in through that entire process. In the book of Acts, one of the things that notes to me the inspiration of Scripture is the lack of effort to clean up all of the ugly stuff. I mean, if this is a totally human book, you know the way we like to rewrite history. The Bible doesn't do that. It tells the good, bad, and the ugly. And that's important for us. We're not not relishing or reveling in their pain and struggle, but we are at least relieved to know that they were just like us. So when they arrived back in Antioch, they called the church together and related all that God had done with them. And how he had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed there with the disciples for some time. Then, there at Antioch, certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul had just preached the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike to human beings and certain people from Jerusalem hearing that he was back in Antioch and noting his message to the people, both Jew and Gentile, came to Antioch and disputed with him and said, listen, unless a, person is, unless a man is circumcised according to the custom of Moses, he can't be saved. I know you're out preaching salvation, telling people they're saved, calling Jesus the savior, But all that notwithstanding, salvation cannot be had outside of Torah, a kosher life, the keeping of circumcision in this case. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, dissension and debate in the early church, imagine that, imagine people disagreeing. Now, there's question as to whether or not these individuals who came from Judea were believers. And there's there's debate on that, and it's conjecturable either way. I think the next part of the text indicates that they were believers, followers of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love that. They didn't just debate them, and there wasn't just dissension. He said, it wasn't small. It was hot and temperatures were flaring. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, by the way, Paul and Barnabas are on the same side here. By the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas get on opposite sides of another issue and separate. And denominationalism starts. So, cohorts at the beginning of the chapter are brothers, and at the end of the chapter, they're still brothers, but they have to part ways. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, which was south of there, and forget the topography of the mountains, I think there's underlying connotation there. Anywhere from Judea was always downward, and to Judea was always upward. Spiritual, religious condescension, perhaps. Maybe not. Maybe that's making too much of the text. But Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. So they get together, and the church in Antioch says, You got to go to headquarters. You got to go to either Rome or if you're Assembly of God, Springfield, Missouri. Wherever the headquarters are, you got to go there. Appointed them to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question. Downtown to Lifeway, Cokesbury. Go to headquarters. Discuss the question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. Now it's interesting, there was dissension and debate and they said I want you to go to Jerusalem and discuss this. Discussion is a euphemism for dissension and debate, right? Discussion is when we try to keep ourselves calm and show the civility of Christ in the middle of our heated disagreements. Thank God for this part of the book. It teaches us how to live when everything isn't perfectly harmonious. And as a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit doesn't give perfect clarity in this case because sometimes things like civility, forbearance, tolerance, and love may be higher virtues than clarity and certainty. Jesus may be trying to teach us more important things than accuracy. So they were sent on their way by the church and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, on their way they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. That's, that's very important to me because before full Gentiles were brought into the kingdom in Acts 10 with Cornelius, the Samaritans were brought into the kingdom in Acts 8. And there wasn't a huge debate about whether or not Samaritan, Samaritans could come into the kingdom because Samaritans... In the best sense of the word were part Jews. Now, to many Orthodox, part would be none, but I think, uh, again, that's debatable. Debatable enough that it you don't see a strong reaction from Jewish Christians that Samaritans were brought in, in spite of what some would call their half-breed status. There wasn't debate there. But when full Gentiles were brought in in Acts 10, church said, no way, can't happen, mm-mm. Samaritans were kind of lost between the two worlds, so much so that when Paul came back through and told the Samaritans, not just you guys, but even Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom, Samaritans who had been marginalized themselves said, yes, and generally marginalized people have sympathy for other marginalized people. And the Samaritans said, good for them. We know how that feels. And there was rejoicing amongst the Samaritans. And so... After they passed through and talked about the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers, look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. You know, at the beginning of any debate, you always shake hands and introduce yourself to the moderator and everybody's nice, right? So they were welcomed and the apostles and elders greeted them and they reported all that God had done with them but some believers, this is interesting, who belong to the sect of the Pharisees. It's a very difficult phrase for some people to wrap their mind around, but if you're talking about denominationalism, this text says there were, and there's a lot to say about that, but some Christian believers belong to the sect of the Pharisees. Phariseeism was, by our standards, a denominationalism an ideology of a sect of early Jewish people. And if Jewish people became Christian, they did not necessarily leave their Jewish sensibilities. They maintained their Jewishness, and they maintained their position as Pharisee. My friend Nick over here, who studies with A.J. Levine, could do a whole lot more on this than I can, but as I understand it, if you were really trying to reconcile the position of Jesus, who he was most accommodated to in his thinking, Jesus probably would have been considered the lion of Pharisaical thought. Not all Phariseeism is bad. Their ideas, many of them were very good. Sometimes their attitude stunk, and Jesus generally attacked the attitude, not the theology. So Jesus probably would have been a Pharisee himself by Tribe. If he would have had to have a voter registration card, he wouldn't have been a Sadducee. He would have been a Pharisee. All right, so there were Christians who were still Jews, and they still got to maintain that adjectival distinction of Pharisee. Look at it again. We're just looking here. Some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, and you can get this, why they would have thought this. Jesus was a Jew. He was their Jewish Messiah. No need to supersede and undo our relationship with God and all of those things that we have learned, walking with God, with the Torah for hundreds of years. But some of the believers, some of the Christians who belong to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. Christianity's great, Jesus is savior. But by their estimation, if Jesus would have been here right now, the resurrected Christ would tell you, you still got to be circumcised. you still got to keep Torah. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, thank God for a holy process. After there had been much debate, and I really... I personally do not assess someone's enlightenment by the position they hold. I possess someone's level of enlightenment. I assess someone's level of enlightenment not by the position they hold, but by their capacity to entertain civilly and kindly with humility other people who don't hold that same position. I see people on either side act like jerks of many situations. And I see people on both sides act with civility and kindness, humanize other people and say we may disagree, but we can have a conversation here. It's a model for that in the church. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. He's hearkening back to Acts 10 and 11 that we just went over a few weeks ago. And he said, I was there and I saw these people against my better judgment receive the gospel, and I saw these people against my better judgment received by God. I was there when I came home and told you that they had been received by God. You couldn't even consider whether they were received by God, you didn't even question why I had baptized them. You asked me why I even ate with them. Much less shared the gospel. And then I told you the story of how the Holy Spirit fell on them, and you backed up and said, how can we disagree with that? And we changed our mind as Holy Spirit-filled Christian people. I was there. Verse 8, and God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he's made no distinction between them and us. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke? An unnecessary burden. Because they... absolutely believed that circumcision was an absolute requirement of salvation. Within a couple of chapters, you're gonna find out that circumcision was not unnecessary because the apostle Paul on his second missionary journey found a young man by the name of Timothy whose mom was a Jew and whose father was Greek and in the mixture of that home, That young man had never been circumcised because obviously the father's role dominated in religious sentiment. But Timothy and his mother had become Christians and now Timothy was going to travel with Paul. And Paul, before he would take Timothy with him, knowing that much of his ministry was still to go into Jewish synagogues, Paul had Timothy circumcised. So circumcision is argued not to be an absolute, but three chapters later for Timothy, it is argued to be an essential. Now later, and it's confusing in the book of Acts for some, Paul said it's essential for Timothy to be circumcised. Later in the book of Acts, he has another young man named Titus traveling with him who is from a Gentile background, and when Jewish people try to force Paul to have Titus circumcised, he fights almost to the death. And he says for Titus, who is a Gentile, it's non-essential. And there's a big discussion about that. But to become Christian, Paul was not saying you leave off with your Jewish heritage, but he was simply saying that heritage should not be imposed upon Gentile people. So the question of what is absolute, what is essential, and at times what can be essential or non-essential, the issue here is circumcision. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Who's putting God to the test? Christians, by absolutizing, and can you be sympathetic to them? Do you know how long circumcision had been a part of their life? I've even made the mistake of talking like this was a a big mosaic issue. This wasn't a mosaic issue. This was deeper than Moses. When did circumcision start for the Jewish people? Anybody remember? Hundreds of years predating the supposed time of Moses. When did Sabbath start for them? Sinai? Exodus 19? No, no, no. Genesis 1. On the seventh day, God rested. Can you be sympathetic to a group of people who have walked with a spiritual reality embedded in them for 2000 plus years. I don't read this. Now I can read it outside of my context and say, what are they thinking? But I can be incredibly sympathetic to people when Jesus is the seed of Abraham. When Jesus says, I'm fulfilling Moses. And circumcision has been a necessary part of our life for that long. These people were not ignorant to say circumcision is an absolute. But Paul stepped in and said something doesn't feel right here. And the church began to distinguish, which I would say that good, good rabbis predating Jesus were even making this distinction. And much of their discussion came out of this very question, what is the difference between an absolute and a time-based essential. Now, I'm not even filling in the blanks today about what the issues are in your contemporary life. That's not a good pastor. Good pastors lead like shepherds, people, and people feed themselves. As John said, you have no need that a man spoon-feeds you all of these things. But as a good facilitator of spirituality, Christian spirituality, I like to take you to the text and say, here's a way for you to do the work that you're supposed to be doing. Why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke? Something that had been a precious part of their life for a couple of thousand years. Not only a yoke, but a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. There's a lot in that. On the contrary, on the contrary, good Christian community can be contrarian. Good Christian community can live within the tension, understanding humbly, that eternal principles, that mining the heart and mind of God may not be the simplest of endeavor. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Again, they're not having a biblical debate here. They're talking about legitimate experiences with God. Events can be mediums through which God speaks. And after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, this is interesting. James replied, look at this. My brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. I'm not a good multitasker, my wife says. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. Now watch this. After this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it, I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. He just quoted. James, the brother of Jesus, just quoted Amos, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. You know what he just did? He quoted scripture to defend what Peter is saying. You know who's doing this? the same guy that four chapters later as the leader of the Jerusalem church, the same Simon Peter had stood before him and said, guys, the Gentiles have received the gospel. And James said, nope, they can't. Scripture says. I told you then that Peter told James the story of the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, and this man who said they cannot, you can't even eat with them based upon the text, this man, as he heard the story, he's Jesus' brother. As he heard the story of how the Holy Spirit fell, he uncrossed his arms and uncrossed his legs and said, you got me. And his conviction and interpretation of an event trumped his interpretation of Scripture. But I told you then, don't make the tragic mistake of thinking that he jettisoned Scripture and said, therefore, experience is above Scripture. No, no, no. What did he do between Acts 11 and Acts 15? He didn't throw Scripture away, did he? Acts 15 said he must have gone back to the book, and when he went back to the book, he read it with different eyes, and he said to himself... Well, I'll be doggone. That's exactly what he said. That comes from Aramaic. I'll be doggone. And this text says James went back, and on this particular day, he didn't regurgitate the events Peter had talked about, because James didn't lose his conviction in scripture, he just humbled himself in terms of his conviction of his interpretation, and he went back and he said, let me look at the text again, and now he says what Peter said actually is not contradicted by scripture. I've read Amos, Jeremiah, and Isaiah differently, and he contends for the very point. It's a tragic mistake. Simply because scripture's not working for you and not resonating for you, for you to throw it away. Look at it again. Then the resurrected Christ opened their minds that they might understand the scripture. Then he led them back to the text and said, let's read it again. The hyper-liberal mistake of thinking that the text could not keep up with modern sensibilities is a tragic mistake only equaled by the legalistic dogmatism of those who are unwilling to read the text with a good sense of contemporary lens and the text was never intended to be abused either way and it even built into its fabric processes of those who struggle with that very issue James now pulls the text back and said the thing that I argued with against I now argue with for Verse 19, therefore, I have reached the decision. There were potentates in the early church. There were apostles and elders who were commissioned by the church, and I thank God. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble. Wow. We should not trouble those Gentiles. Trouble. What has been the precious experience of us, what has been a real part of our relationship with God is yoke and trouble in another setting. We should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols eating meat offered to idols to and from whatever meat that has been strangled anybody have a grandma that would catch the chicken in the backyard. And blood. And these two may be appositional, they may be the same thing. And, huh? Fornication, pornaya, in general, sexual immorality. Not simply premarital sex, but in the strict sense of the early use of this, sexual immorality. That's what we're going to put on. This isn't salvation, but this is the way safe people ought to live. <clears throat> for in every city, because location matters for generations past, time matters, Moses has had those who proclaim him for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders with the consent of the whole church decided to choose men from among their members and to send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. Listen to this. You want apostolic Rule, apostolic authority, here it is. They send a letter. They have a scripture, it's the law, the prophets, and to some extent the writings, but they send a letter. They send the first, Catholics would love to say they send the first papal bull. They send a letter and they say, verse 24, Well, look at 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria. There are denominations. Jewish believers, Judean Jewish believers, Hellenistic Jewish believers, Gentile believers, Samaritan believers, Pharisee believers. But this this letter... is to believers of Gentile origin. Can you have apostolic messages to particular denominations, to particular people in specific context? This was not a letter written to the whole church. This was a letter written to Gent, he said this is to the Gentile, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Because not only does time matter, but geography and social location matter. Verse 24, since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from among us, though with no instruction for us, we just want you to know we didn't send them, they have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds. We have decided unanimously to choose representatives and to send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good. Thank God for the humility of those who descend and debate who can say it seemed good. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, look at it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than, what are these called? Than these absolutes, no. What's he called them? This is what you guys call the New Testament and this is an apostle speaking in letter form, and he has just said these things are essentials. Do you obey these things? Hopefully, you are one for four at least. but these were essentials for a particular group of people. You say, well that's just, the Bible says it's for a particular group of people. Yes it does. What are you? But this was for that generation in Syria and Cilicia. And the apostles said they're essential. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. And in the text, we have watched the apostles wrestle with the difference between absolutes and essentials. They did say the absolute is that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus? Jesus was asked a lot of religious questions and when really, 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 really pressed on the matter, Jesus said, you wanna pin me down? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Good Jewish Torah. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, all the wrestling, all the struggle, all the appropriation. There are absolutes, But when we call these, this, we put yokes and burdens on people. When we look at scripture and say it was all a bunch of anachronistic essentials that have no relevance to us, we miss the beauty of an inspired text. And both extremes are incredibly to be pitied. I'll close reading this last few verses. So they went off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, and said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, celebrating their victory, and there with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, buddy, great victory. Let us return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take with them John Mark. He looked at Paul and said, good, I'll get John Mark. Paul decided, no, not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. Barnabas, the guy he had early celebrated the victory with, said, you mean we can't take my nephew? Mr. Grace, you're not gonna give the kid a second chance? And the disagreement between these guys who had been on the same side early became so sharp that they parted company. All parting is not unholy. As long as you don't anathematize, curse, and call reprobate the one with whom you're parting. I am saddened by how divided the Christian church is, and yet I relish the freedom of opinion and thought that allows us at times, Gary, to separate and say, bless you, I disagree. I have hoped in the Christian church that the things over which we disagree would not be so absolutized that it means we can no longer be together But Paul, who argued for that first compromise, had such a disagreement with Barnabas, it became so strong that they had to part company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and set out. A guy from Jerusalem, he sets out with Silas. The good news is, it doesn't say Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away and become... reprobate church no they both went on after parting companies blessed one another and did good work God give us the maturity to read the biblical text not just for final propositional truth but for the process the holy process of holy discernment by which we are called to get together and I hope in the middle of our dissension and debate we can remember when we strongly disagree to the point of even having to separate practically. We can remember there is an absolute by which we do our disagreement, debate, separation, parting, and dissension. And that absolute cannot be relativized. And this is the call of Christianity. This is a great book. Don't throw it away, but make sure you handle it properly. It can hurt people really, really badly. Or it can help save their life. Amen? Isn't this beautiful? Now, if we can just... Teach the Democrat and Republican inside of us to have this same debate. But I'll tell you, it's happening. We are tired of partisanship in the church, in the world, in our country, and people are looking for a way forward. And that way forward is with guys like Clint Ribble's dad, Reed Ribble. Next time you get ready to throw Congress away, remember there are people like Reed that are trying to reach across the aisle and remind people we're Americans, just like Paul was trying to remind people we're Christians. Can we be good to one another? Amen? God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you in the house of the Lord next week.